Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask poets to pick a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read one of their own poems that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is the writer and artist Clarence Major, whose recent honors include a Penn Oakland Reginald Lockett Lifetime Achievement Award and a Lifetime Achievement Award in the Fine Arts from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Clarence, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. The poem you've chosen to read today is Downpour by Billy Collins. What was it about this particular poem that caught your attention as you're looking through our archives? Well, I think it speaks to the moment we're in, especially as it progresses. And it's just so many layers. It has deep um, implications about all kinds of things having to do with the American idiom, uh, with uh, the tradition of modern poetry, what it says about which tradition it's speaking from, as well as perhaps even rejecting to some degree. But particularly uh, because of where we are now, it struck me as a very useful and interesting poem to talk about, you know, because it has so much to do with uh, on, on a superficial level, the supermarket, which has become such an important place now for people, you know. Absolutely. And also, you know, the death toll mounting and remembering the dead with reverence and compassion and so on. All right. Well, why don't we hear the poem? Here's Clarence Major reading Downpour by Billy Collins. Last night, uh, we ended up on the couch trying to remember all of the friends who had died so far. And this morning I wrote them down in alphabetical order on the flip side of a shopping list you had left on the kitchen table. So many of them had been swept away as if by a hand from the sky. It was good to recall them, I was thinking, under the cold lights of a supermarket as I guided a cart with a wobbly wheel up and down the long, strident aisles. I was on the lookout for blueberries, English muffins, linguine, heavy cream, light bulbs, apples, Canadian bacon, and whatever else was on the list, which I managed to keep grocery side up, until I passed through the electric doors when I stopped to realize as I turned the list over that I had forgotten Terry O'Shea, as well as the bananas and the bread. It was pouring by then, spilling, as they say in Ireland, 
people slashing across the lot to their cars. And that is when I set out, walking slowly and precisely, a soaking wet man bearing bags of groceries, walking as if in a procession honoring the dead. I felt I owed this to Terry, who was such a strong painter, for almost forgetting him and to all the others who had formed a circle around him on the screen in my head. I was walking more slowly now in the presence of the compassion the dead were extending to a comrade. Plus, I was in no hurry to return to the kitchen where I would have to tell you all about Terry and the bananas and the bread. That was Downpour by Billy Collins, originally published in the November 18th, 2019 issue of the magazine. I really love the end of that poem where this you comes in and, you know, it, it kind of is the reader uh, who has already been told all of these things, but then suddenly it's also this beloved unnamed, but also someone who the speaker has to tell about this forgetting. Uh, how do you take that ending? Yeah. Man, you know, I was reminded of William Carlos Williams uh, little poem. We all know this is just the same um, in which he, um, uh, it goes something like, I have eaten the plums that were in the ice box and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. You know, it's, it's obviously addressed to his wife. Um, and I, I assume this is also the case here. It's with a beloved person or at least a companion, someone at home. And he's the one mm -hmm. doing the shopping. Uh, in the Billy Collins poem. Uh, and he's also, he has to come back and confess a failure. Mm. And this is the same thing with Williams, you know. Um, he has to, he's apologizing for, you know, having failed his wife in this very small way, but still, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> a kind, right. kind of uh, transgression, or, or maybe that's too strong a word. I don't know. Everyone forgets something from the supermarket. It, it wouldn't be a trip without that. Though I think, as you point out, in this particular moment, those lists and that sort of task become so freighted uh, now, especially in cities. Uh, being in New York, you know, you, you have to plan, you have to mask up, you have to really think about what you're going to get, uh, and maybe only once a week. Um, so there is a sort of tension in there between this danger and the everydayness of forgetting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I felt. You know, and also you think about he writes them down on the back of a shopping list, this list of dead friends in alphabetical order, very methodical uh, mm. thing to do in alphabetical order. But the irony is that it's offhanded. Mm-hmm. And you think, you know, what could be more ironic than to do such an important uh, listing on the back of something that is so, you know, potentially uh, a throwaway piece of paper? The poem just speaks to me just on so many different levels. I was thinking also last night, you know, as I was thinking about what we were talking about, I, I thought, well, what is he saying here with the form? And I think he situates himself in, in the tradition 
of Williams more than in these other very important poets, uh, such as T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Wallace Stevens, and maybe Hart Crane as well, where he's uh, saying, you know, uh, poetry can be very profound, but it doesn't have to be highfalutin. Mm -hmm. Is that the American idiom you're talking about? Yeah, you know, and, and I, I think Billy Collins, of course, is famous for taking a, a very simple subject and ending up making it very profound. I think there's a, you know, a poem is a figure of speech as much as it is a figure of, say, imagination. Um, and in fact, of course, my favorite poets, uh, you know, make clear that those two things are the same. And here I almost feel like he uh, is able to take a grand gesture listing the dead. I mean, which is something um, we do and it's just been Memorial Day and we remember, you know, we remember by naming and he takes that and also sort of plays with it a little bit. There's humor in the poem that I think also arguably is part of the American idiom you mentioned. But there's also, you know, Canadian bacon and English muffins and um, the everyday stuff that kind of gets in the way of remembering. Or is it that always memory is the flip side of that everyday stuff? I mean, how did you uh, reconcile that or see that as a tension or as a fruitful kind of playfulness? Well, yeah, I, I see the tension there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, I think, a, a level of irony, too. Uh, also, you know, I was reminded of Emily Dickinson's little poem. You may remember the lines, because I could not stop for death. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. When I got to the last three stanzas, that poem did come back to my mind at, the, at that moment. Sure, because at the end, I was walking more slowly now in the presence of the compassion the dead were extending to a comrade. You know, that's that's is a hand being held out. Uh, that's exactly what I was trying to remember. That word comrade mm -hmm. took me back to Dickinson's uh, poem where she personifies death. One well, as a kindly uh, presence. Um, and I, I think there's something about the long stride in aisles, you know, it's a, the supermarket is a place that Billy Collins, I think, here renders strange, but also strangely familiar. The cold lights of a supermarket as I guided a cart with a wobbly wheel up and down the long strident aisles. You know, there's a very Americanness in that, even if he's shopping for so-called English muffins and Canadian bacon. You know, I think maybe Canadian bacon is more American than Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, and what about this moment of Terry O'Shea, the painter? Of course, it's a poem that says it forgets Terry O'Shea, but it's a poem remembering Terry O'Shea. And by the end, I think more important than if we knew Terry O'Shea, it's that the bananas and the bread and Terry O'Shea become these kind of trinity almost at the end of of daily things, of something that's to be spoken of um, and, and almost like a, a litany. Absolutely. And here, irony, again, they put on the same level. <laughs> right. I think of other of Billy Collins' poems. He has a very famous poem called The Dead. And here, The Dead it almost makes an appearance. Uh, again, a revision of that poem. Yeah, I remember that poem. Absolutely. And The Dead and The Bread, of course, have this uh, rhyme. And bread has such a, you know, classic sustenance meaning uh, an almost and a christian meaning of of sort of 
breaking bread or sharing bread, but also of of the body of uh, God. Absolutely. Bread is life. It has mm-hmm. connotations and it's a lo- such a long symbolic history in our literature and in the culture. Sure. Uh, there's just, you know, endless, endless things you can keep finding here. So now in the, the May 7th, 2018 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker published your poem, Hair, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything you want to tell us about the poem before we hear it? Anything listeners might like to know going in? Well, you know, it comes out of my own cultural uh, memories of um, grandparents. And, uh, you know, I lived with my grandparents for a couple of years in Georgia. So, you know, and they lived in a farm. They had a farmhouse and a fireplace. And, you know, my grandmother would burn her hair that came out in the comb. And, you know, I often wondered, why did she do that? I mean, I had those same farm ways and folk ways growing up. Uh, Hair, your fingernails, all these things, you had to, you know, take care of them, (laughs) Uh, even when they were not part of you anymore, uh, for superstitious and, you know, perhaps sensible reasons. And, yeah, you know, I've had a longstanding interest in superstition itself. Sure. Uh, and why people uh, believe what they believe, and you know, the way of explaining the world, of course, sure, to uh, themselves, and um, yeah. So the poem comes out of uh, all of that. I would say my kind of scholarly interest in superstition, as well as my folkloric experience with family and background, and so on. Excellent. Here's Clarence Major reading his poem, Hair. In the old days, hair was magical. If hair was cut, you had to make sure it didn't end up in the wrong hands. Bad people could mix it with, say, the spit of a frog or with the urine of a rat. And certain words might be spoken and horrible things might happen to you. A woman with a husband in the Navy could not comb her hair after dark. His ship might go down. But good things can happen, too. My grandmother threw a lock of her hair in the fireplace. It burned brightly. That is why she lived to be 101. My uncle had red hair. One day it started falling out. A few days later, his infant son died. Some women let their hair grow long. If it fell below the knees, that meant they would never find a husband. Braiding hair into cornrows was a safety measure. It would keep hair from falling out. My aunt dropped a hairpin. It meant somebody was talking about her. Birds gathered human hair to build their nests. They wove it around sticks, and nothing happened to the birds. They were lucky. But people? That was Hair by Clarence Major. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. I love that poem, especially the end there where where you have that lingering question, you know, and the poem has this um, determinism, but also this kind of wonder that I, I think is really powerful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And were you thinking about uh, the American idiom, as you put it so well about Billy Collins, with this poem, were you thinking about writing in English uh, plain enough that Cats and dogs can understand it, as Marion Moore would say. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think um, at this point, I don't consciously think about writing in the American idiom. I hope, I, I hope I'm doing that um, all the time. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, use grandiose words, but still you hope that it's in plain, plain enough English that um, anybody can understand it. Um, I wouldn't say writing down. No, I don't. Well, I think it's almost like writing up. You know, like when I started writing, I think I thought those, you know, uh, you know, dollar words or, you know, maybe with inflation, their $10 words uh, were poetic somehow. And it became really important. I think I became a writer, really, when I understood that the language my grandparents spoke, uh, which was... Uh, you know, informed by living on farms in Louisiana and in the country was way more poetic and way more interesting than uh, any of that. And those words were invaluable in that way. And there's something in that to me that comes off in the kind of wonder with, say, the spit of a frog or with the urine of a rat, you know, this exclamation you have, there's, uh, that's the kind of wonder I was, I think you convey in the poem. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, um, I I I agree with what you just said about um, the richness of the um, uh, everyday speech. You know, um, I think it's just it's just powerful, and that's where that's where the energy of the language is is in you know in its I, what I think of as in the early stages of its invention. You know, because language always works from well. Uh, I guess scholars would say from the ground up, or Whitman used that expression, actually. Uh, language is always from the ground up. Um, but I, I think um, I would say it works from uh, slang and jargon and dialect and, um, you know, uh, all kinds of idioms, uh, everyday idioms, uh, up toward formality. In other words, we don't start with a formal language. We start with an everyday language that very often becomes formal. Mm -hmm. And what happens is uh, Pound has 
pointed out, and several other very important poets have pointed out, is that once the language becomes formal, it, it's just about dead, really. It, it's on its deathbed. But if you can keep it fresh, you know, developing, and the way it's at its freshest is when it's developing as a, as as a kind of uh, as a kind of fermenting, growing, sprouting language that just taking roots, you know. But I do I do try to stay with uh, language that's alive as much as possible. Well, and how did it come then? Did it come this way, or did it did it? Uh... A lot of this stuff comes out of things I heard when I was a kid. I heard the older folks say, you know, not all of them relatives, but some of them neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember an old woman used to sit on the front porch and she would call me up and have, call me up on the porch and have me thread her needle because she couldn't see it, you know, to stick the thread through the eye of the needle. Sure, yeah. <laughs> she had a lot of uh, very interesting beliefs. So it comes from people like that old woman sitting on the front porch, um, a neighbor of my grandparents. Uh, once the first couple of memories came back, it, it kind of generated other memories. Sure. Some of these are actually uh, things I've just heard in recent years. You know, I did a dictionary about slang, which is also something uh, closely related to superstition and folk culture. Well, that's why I, w- I did want to ask you about that and then about uh, your fiction. Uh, you've done this wonderful dictionary, and I actually have sitting here the first dictionary you did, the Dictionary of Afro-American Slang. And then you revised that into From Juba to Jive later. And I think they're both excellent resources. Uh, what drew you to you know do these dictionaries? Did it come from your interest in the language that feeds much of poetry? Yeah, absolutely. Poetry, as well as uh, the fiction that I was trying to write as well, you know, uh, a lot of it uh, came out of uh, that. But also, I think I, I think my interest in the dictionaries must have come from the cultural experiences I had as a kid and as a, as a young adult, just hearing people speak different um, forms of English. Uh, you know, I lived in in Chicago, I lived in New York for many years in Manhattan. I taught at Brooklyn College and Queens College. I taught at a lot of these different places, and I heard different forms of language and different sets of slang spoken. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, it's interesting what happens to language uh, in clusters of people, where you get clusters of speech patterns here and there that are similar but different similar but different all over and remembering much more vividly perhaps what i grew up hearing in both the south down south and well as well as in chicago uh, the rhythms in the language of my relatives and their neighbors in the south in atlanta and you lived in atlanta for a long time i did i did you know, and my family's from Louisiana too, so I grew up hearing lots of different. I, I think you put it well, different kinds of English, and also different. I would just say straight up Englishes. You know, we have this plurality of of talk 
that I think makes it special. And um, you really capture it in your own work, but I think also in this wonderful uh, set of dictionaries. Oh, thank you. I may not have told you ever that um, when I was uh, uh, writing a book about Jean-Michel Basquiat, I came across your uh, dictionary of Afro-American slang, and I realized that it was a, something that Basquiat had used in one of his paintings, one of his giant paintings, famous one, Eroica, uh one and two. There's that cycle of painting and, and poetry and, and slang again uh, coming full circle. Yeah, I have I have several books of his work, and I have that I have that big book of his uh, paintings, and I, I well I you know I came across that quite on my own without anybody telling me, and I noticed it, and I said, wow, this is <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And he was you know he was living in New York when I was there, and I I guess I just never met him, you know. Sure. Living in the village, but I don't think our paths ever crossed. Well, the question I had, and, and you know, um, just as we come to the end, is thinking about what do you see, or do you see anything as a connection between your work as a painter and, say, the painters you knew, and your work as a writer? Well, I think there are a lot of uh, ways that the two activities uh, intersect. Um, yeah, well, you know, they they share quite a bit metaphor implications you can you can imply things in painting you can imply things in poetry i i wrote an essay on the subject actually in my uh, new book is uh, called painting and poetry well there you go <laughs> those are the things and did did they, your both of them change over the years or and or were they you always doing both or does one come to the foreground and one recede or is it a dance they both do I used to be able to do both at the same time, but late, I noticed lately, you know, I put aside the painting and, and write and just focus on writing. And then I put aside the writing and just focus on painting. Uh, so um, my approach changes and um, who knows why, but right now that's that's the way I'm doing it. Maybe I, I just can't... Uh, multitask the way a lot of people do. I, I have to focus on one thing at a time. Right now, I'm focused on writing. I'm trying to write a whole book of poems about uh, monuments and uh, poems about special occasions, uh, public uh, events, something that I don't think anybody has ever done. I don't know. I may be wrong about this, but I'm going, I started off thinking, well, I'm going to do uh, American uh, events and monuments and so on. But now I, I've expanded it to include the entire world, like, you know, um, the Leaning Tower. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, li I lived in Italy for about a year, and I lived in France for a year and a half. So there are a lot of, I've had a lot of experiences with sure. uh, public that even outside of the United States. And so I'm thinking now I'm going to expand it to include a lot of other places where I've had some kind of public uh, relationship with ceremonial places. I'm thinking about ways to make it interesting rather than dull. Sure. Well, and I think there's a, there's a question. I think we're thinking about this a lot uh, collectively and individually uh, in this moment about memory, uh, about uh, memorializing things, and then also about 
what do these large events mean uh, and how do we sort of wrestle with them? I, I think that's a very pertinent topic uh, for us all. I, I thinking across the poems, uh, the Billy Collins poem you picked and your own poem, those poems are wrestling with small moments of memory, but that are really big, you know, that are about life and death, um, about existence and belief. Um, and I can see that uh, working well in, in this new work. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Um, that kind of g- it gives some clarity to it. <laughs> Well, Clarence, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Kevin. Great talking with you. Hair by Clarence Major, as well as Billy Collins's Downpour, can be found on NewYorker.com. Billy Collins's new collection, Whale Day, and other poems will be published in the fall. The Essential Clarence Major is out this June. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.